Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to this, the next episode in our series, Getting to Better Together. I've made the point in uh, previous episodes that we face a whole host of pressing issues that demand getting to better, strategies and actions for responsible and sustainable changes to the challenges both of short-term crises like COVID-19, bushfires, economic recession, and so on, and long-term enduring matters such as climate change and uh, its potential and growing impacts. And I've emphasised the need for governments at all levels, that private sector, institutions, communities, and we citizens alike all need to work together if these issues are to be addressed in all of their horrifying complexity. The big question is how? And this is a theme that I'll be following with my guest today, Tammy Harriet. Morning, Tammy. Good morning, Richard. Tammy is the inspiration for and the general manager of the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, CIDSL, which is the sponsor of this podcast of Getting to Better Together. So let me start with my first question to Tammy, obviously. What was your motivation in proposing and initiating this podcast of Getting to Better Together? So Richard, firstly, I I don't want to take credit for being the inspiration. I think it was a collective inspiration. And it really was founded on the concept of a more deliberative democracy that we live in. And we enjoy that within the center every day. And we wanted to share that with the public. I think that you know, we always have to challenge ourselves in the way in which we engage with our communities. And this was one of the ideas. This is one of the things that we thought we could do. And I'm going to be selfish in saying that there's also a bit of legacy behind this for me. I think I want to leave behind, or, or if I think of history, something that history will remember me by, is of doing something <laughs> that was something more than just showing up right. every day. Right. So uh, this, this conversation that we're trying to have, the engagement with our community, the role that the centres plays in, in that sort of civic engagement around deliberative democracy is something I felt that was important. But I do want to say that it was a shared vision. It wasn't something that just came out of a selfish desire to do it. It really was a shared vision that we all have a responsibility if we want to get to better. And so that togetherness of getting to better is that collective you know, decision, that collective journey that we're on. The, the centre, uh, Sidsel, has a major focus on international development and obviously with COVID-19 at the moment that's um, particularly restricted. What, what do you think international development, your experiences in international development, has given you in terms of being able to articulate and see quite clearly uh, in your mind what getting to better together really means? So I think as I've traveled the world, I, I've, I've been doing consulting for more than 20 years. And that has afforded me the opportunity to travel to many places and to see many different things. And and the thing that is um, just very obvious to me, having done this for a while, is that we are all seeking to develop in our own ways. And we're along this development continuum at different places in this point of time in history. However, you know, that desire to get to better is 
uniquely identified. We we don't have a central theme for that. I think that we're not all aligned that that, that place we want to be. And so, it, you know, when I the experience I have through international development is that it is important to get stakeholders aligned to a central theme to find the thing that connects us, the thing that links us in order for us to get to better together because we have to be working collectively towards a central goal. Yeah, that's that's um, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the word development's got an unfortunate, um, what do we call it, baggage in terms of particularly local effects of people draining wetlands to build buildings and put high-rises on beaches uh, and so on. Um, I, I like the definition of the uh, of the Indian economist Amartya Sen, who says that development is the freedom of individuals to do things that one has reason to value, and that strikes me as a sort of ethical statement, and, and a very pragmatic one at that, because I think that it's understanding that we place value in different things, but we almost respect that that is for all of us, very different, right? It, it, it isn't that we can define what development is for, for individuals or for cultures. We have, to, we have to engage more widely to understand what that is if we are to contribute or to participate in that development process. Whilst it's true, of course, that we do have um, specific ideals of, of what each of us would see as, as better, the, the UN, as I mentioned in a previous episode, has uh, articulated, has come up with 17 different sustainability development goals, um, which, as I've said, I, I outlined uh, previously. It, it was stated by the UN when they uh, generated those 17 that achieving the sustainability development goals requires the partnerships of governments, private sector, civil society, and citizens alike to make sure that we leave a better planet for future generations. What does that mean, do you think, for you as an individual? What, how would you contribute as an individual? So I have to start with that I think that the 17 goals are sort of a framework for understanding the development priorities. And I think that's a very good starting place. When we look at the collective um, discussions around these development goals, it's really articulating that if we want to develop sustainably, we have to keep all of these priorities top of mind, and it is a contribution made by different stakeholder groups in that process. It can't be one at the um, disadvantage of the other. So we must come together together to for those investment priorities to be addressed. What it doesn't articulate as well is the how. And I think that's where a lot of people get um, sort of undone with, well, what do I do? Well, the first thing we have to do is recognize that both government, the private sector, and civil society must come together, which means that we have to engage in the process of development. We can't simply deliver development. On an individual level, what that means to me is I have to be hyper-conscious that the activities that I do will have an impact on others. And I need to understand that how that impact is going to be translated for those people. So I must bring them into the conversation early discussion, not just simply forge ahead with what I think is best. CISL, of course, is a unit within the University of the Sunshine Coast. What role do you see universities playing in this particular dialogue, this communication, this discourse? Well, I think universities play uh, a very 
important role. Um, one of the things that we have behind us is the ability to have this, you know, the research informed portion of it. We're very analytical and evaluative about the things that we do. We can create the tools that can be more diagnostic in, in terms of what we're doing, but also engaging communities in the conversation. I think we play a role as a, as a mediator of sorts, which I think that at the moment when I look at the role that our department plays, so SIDSL, I would like to shift us from the implementation to more of the early discussions on investment, because I believe without influence at that stage, we get locked into something that we will do well, but we can contribute a whole lot better if we had early engagement. So I think that universities can look at, like departments like us, to look at how we get involved in the stage that we get involved in development because the early stage um, discussions for me are a very important part to ensure that the development priorities are achieved in a manner in which it meets the requirements of the stakeholders or all the stakeholders are considered so that the value that's placed on, on, on development can be you know, experienced by those stakeholder groups. Yes, I'm, I'm always a bit um, uh, hesitant, I guess, as, as an academic um myself for 50 odd years, uh, that I'm not sure our impact has been anywhere near as important as it, as it could be or should be. Um, and I'm thinking about the sustainability development goals from that perspective. Um, far too many people, it seems to me, uh, I guess don't deny that climate is changing, but certainly deny that we have to change the way we live quite dramatically if we are to quote the the uh, United Nations to take urgent action to control climate change and its impacts. Why do you think that's so? Why have we been so loath to speak out, as it were? So I'm going to talk, I think collectively as a society, climate change is a big issue, but it speaks to whether or not we're playing a short game or a long game. Most people that we talk about in the climate change, we talk about a short game. We talk about the immediate um, the immediate challenges we face if we are to take action today. And that gives us permission to delay. <laughs> but we, we're, we're stuck in the cycle of the short game. We're always just dealing with the immediate things, employability, jobs, income, at the risk of the long game, future employability, jobs, income. We're talking about the same things, but it's whether or not we see it as a today's problem or tomorrow's problem. That's why I say that the role that we have has to be in the engagement of the early stage. Because if we can shift people from the short game to the long game, we would have a better result and we would be working on the future game. And I think that that's where most of this discussion is getting really you know, diluted, is that we're not looking at beyond the next two years. We should be looking at to the next 20 years, to the next 50 years. And you know, I like the idea of the seven generations. I think we look, should be looking at what are we leaving for the seven generations that will come in the future, but we don't have those discussions. I'd like to change that. I'd like to start the discussion by not about the immediate jobs, but what are we looking for in the future? There's an interesting um, conversation I was looking at in the press conference in the U.S. where they were talking about the immediate action that Biden had taken about shutting down the pipeline, and everyone talked about the jobs that were going to be lost. 
even though jobs would be built in the future around green technology, no one could see that because we're reacting to the immediate. There has to be sometimes short-term pain for long-term gain. And I think that's a psyche that we have to change within our society. We have to get people to recognize that doing nothing today is going to cost us more in the future. When we talk about long-term and short-term, one of the issues that immediately raises itself and raises flies flags, if you will, in my mind, is the issue of government. And governments in this country in particular think very much in the short term. Um, would you, what would you, your comment be that it, democratic forms of government are essential in getting together together? I think everything works great in theory. <laughs> I, I think in practice, what we see is that there are different things that are required for different stages and different stages of development and different stages of um, political understanding or civic duty. So it is not that, I don't think that we can preference one over the other. I think that we, we have to look at the relevance of how we implement what is necessary to get to that together, to the better, and what that means on a local level or in, in, in the cultures that we talk about. To say that, that there is one right answer probably is a bit arrogant, if not naive. For those of us uh, who have been watching what's been happening in America over the last four years in particular and under the Trump presidency, there's been a growing concern that democracy itself is at risk in that country a country that has, in a sense, led the whole notion of of democracy in the modern world. Uh, and I was reminded of a comment by uh, Alexis de, uh, de Tocqueville uh, back in the 19th century when he said, I know of no country in which there is so little independence of mind or real freedom of discussion as in America. With your American accent, tell me about that. Well... We're an interesting society, aren't we? Um, and I'm a product of that. So to be fair, I'm a product of that. Um, we can we talk about these democratic principles, but we at the same time simultaneously we play a zero sum game, <laughs> and that's problematic, because if you think of democracy and the values placed around development, then you'd want more people to benefit in a democracy. But yet, we seem to have a cultural mindset at the moment that one group can be preferred over another. And that's problematic throughout American history that's happened. Yes, I mean, I, I uh, often think about the fact that um, the year I got married, 1964, was the year where the Civil Rights Act was in the end passed from the time when the uh, the American Revolution uh, was back in the 1770s. Why did it take so long? But you, one can even argue that it's passed, but has it been realized? You know, you had Black Lives Matters that happens today to show some of the issues. And I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm African-American, so I can speak of this firsthand. You know, those cultural issues are not solved only through policy. They're not solved only through legislation. It's 
It's a transformation of our culture and who we are, the identity of who we are as a people. And I don't know that even though we celebrate diversity, we actually get it. So if we don't get it on a local level, how can we understand it on an international level? Um, culturally, I am many things. I always call myself a bitsa. And I think that's probably helped to shape my perspective because I have experienced these things firsthand. And through that experience, it shapes the way I think and maybe it gives me a bit more empathetic for others. I understand it, I get it, and I don't want to see it continued. So if I look at, yes, look at the, the price that was paid for civil rights. Yes, we did get to a point that legislatively we can have an act, however, in 2021, what does that mean to be black in America? Black lives matter. It, they do. And, and, and people, when they talk about that and they say, well, all lives matter, yes, we're saying that, but we're saying recognize that this is happening to a group and it shouldn't. And we should all be disgusted that it is. And it wouldn't matter to me what that group was. It's a fact that if we have a culture that can think that that practice is okay, we're in for big problems. Yes, I think there's a huge um, mis misunderstanding in, in those words, isn't there, that Black Lives Matter is exactly as you suggest. It's focusing on an issue. It has nothing to do with, with lives in general. It's saying, as you say, here is a group of highly disadvantaged people still, after all these years, um, from way back when, uh, and of course, slavery went uh, for more than a hundred years, yeah. and and not only was tolerated but was encouraged. You know, it's it's hard to have these conversations at times with people who don't have a grasp of the history and, and where things are coming from. But it's for me, I, I play it with the, with gender as well, right? It's like when you try to advance things about women, you hear the same thing. What about men? Well, we're not saying that they're not important, but we're saying that they're not the pressing issue of the day. And we should not try to dilute the value of the pressing issue of the day by simply coming up with smart aleck comments. For me, that's a smart aleck comment. If there wasn't an issue with gender, or if there wasn't an issue with race and ethnicity, we wouldn't have to talk about it. But there is one. What do we do about it? So it speaks to the how. Yeah, that's right. One of the points that has been impressed upon me uh, as originally an agricultural scientist trying to feed the world, as it were, is that the issues that seemed quite simple at the start, grow a plant, harvest it, treat it, eat it, is in fact infinitely more complex than that. In terms of getting the message out about pressing issues, how do we press upon people that these issues are really complex and demand us rethink critically about the way we indeed address issues that are complex? So, if I think about that, that's probably why the Sustainable Development Goals are simply single words of, of priority areas, because it is for us to negotiate those conversations. We simply cannot engage by telling people what the problem is. We can try to understand the problem from the different perspectives of the stakeholders. So, when I look at it, it is an opportunity for us to take the responsibility to engage better. And I think that's a great thing if we can embrace it. And that brings that togetherness together, understanding that for each of us, it might be different. And we're not going to solve the problem for anyone, but can we get closer to it? I believe we can. I think there's been a lot of criticism in terms of the 
the basic assumptions of, of the Sustainability Development Goals in that they reflect a particular worldview, a worldview that is often described as modernist, i.e. that it's really to do with neoliberal economics, it's to do with the marketplace, it's to do with individualism, and so on. And so, for me, the more profound issue uh, than the 17 particular targets uh, of goals and their targets is this issue of, of worldview challenge and change. A, do you agree with that? And if so, how do we address this issue of worldview challenge? I think it's an assumption that's built in the system that it's built on a worldview. And, and to some degree, if you anyone who, an architecture that builds something constructed around their own worldview, so we understand that. However, there is room for contextualization. And I think that that's where we need to go. When I look at the challenges that we face and the discussions that we have, we tend to think of the things that makes it impossible for us to move. I think we have to shift our mindset and find the, the common ground where we can start. So for me, an acknowledgement that everything is built on a worldview, however, that there is room for contextualization is part of the process that we have to go through. So as we shift into the how, that's the sort of conversation we need to engage in, is not so much on the things that are going to blow up, right? They're, they're going to cause us to distress, but the things that we can agree on that can help us to move forward on this journey of getting to better. Let me end this fascinating conversation with a quote from uh, Aidan Davison, who is an Australian philosopher, uh, very interested, profoundly obsessed, one might even say, by issues to do with, with environmentalism and with climate change, with sustainability and so on. He makes an extraordinarily important point by saying that the ideal of sustainability gives rise to an agenda of good questions, practical questions that bear directly on our forms of life, drawing out and giving practical substance to our disquiet and to our hopes. And he makes the really important point. Responses to these questions are essentially contestable. They demand of us not categorical certainty, but the capacity to articulate what we feel to be most worthy of being sustained in our lives. And for me, that clearly suggests or emphasizes the fact that the sustainability development goals are a moral imperative. And in the next episode, we will be discussing this issue with Associate Professor Roger Packham from Western Sydney University, who has lots to say about values and ethics in particular. Until then, goodbye.